night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Kelly McGrath-Martinson, publisher of Natural Awakenings Long Island and author of A Year of Inspired Living, Essays and Exercises for Self-Reflection. Kelly McGrath-Martinson has exactly the guide you need to make life richer and more meaningful. Through entertaining anecdotes and guided journal pages, she helps you create your very own personalized self-help book. Kelly found herself laid off from her job as a pharmaceutical executive, struggling with a husband's cancer diagnosis and a son's rare epilepsy disorder. Inspired by a few years of her own inspired living, she connects with readers and helps them reach into the hidden corners of their lives and develop a greater awareness of their personal relationships and journeys. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, this, Kelly. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, you've gone through, obviously, and we're going to be talking about this, a lot of different, I would describe them as crises in your own life, which I assume has inspired you, as I said, to want to live a more inspired life and share this with, with readers in this case. And um, so let's talk, talk, let's start in the beginning. So what did, how did this all come about? I mean, you've had some really tough times, and I guess as a result of that, you realized what really was able to, as you say, put out the fires and calm yourself down and find your own passion. Right. So um, I would say what started, it's, it's actually very interesting. My, my path to this book um, was, like you said, it was, I had a lot of different life experiences and some were horrendous and some were amazing. And I didn't even know. So this book is a guided journaling book, right? But I wouldn't even know if you asked me five years ago, do you journal? I would probably have told you, no, I don't. I would always write. So any, if I was in with a doctor, my husband had cancer, I'd be writing. If I woke up in the morning, I'd be writing. I was always writing, and that was my pause. It was the pause I gave myself to get through sort of each good thing and bad. And it was, al- it was allowing me a lot of clarity. Like my husband's diagnosis was very rare. At the time, uh, he had cholangiocarcinoma, and at the time, they hadn't even done a living donor transplant for that disease in New York. Um, so it was just so rare and so new, and there were so many questions. Um, so what I, is, what, I want to backtrack. What is yeah. that? Explain to us what what is so that diagnosis? It's a. I'm sorry. Yeah, cholangiocarcinoma is a cancer of the bile duct, and at the time he was diagnosed, I guess around 2007, the only place that even had a protocol to treat it, which included a liver donor, you know, a liver transplant, chemo radiation, and a liver transplant. The only place you could even get that is at the Mayo Clinic in um, Rochester, Minnesota. And so we had two young kids. One was three, one was five. One was also battling his own epilepsy diagnosis at the same time. Um, And I should fast forward so that everybody knows everybody's healthy right now. My husband's alive and he's at work now. I'm going to come home and surf in the 30 degree weather. And my son's healthy, happy on his wrestling team and you know, driving his car to school at 17. So we are all healthy and well, but at that time, you know, it was def- definitely touch and go. And I found that writing for me helped me pause and make much clear, more clear decisions. And while I was going through this whirlwind of craziness, you know, my work, my 
my job as an as a pharmaceutical manager, you know, was on the back burner. Yes, I was showing up, but my head wasn't really there. Um, for a few years, as I was getting my life in order, when they finally, when my life was finally in order, when everybody was sort of on the road to recovery health wise, and I was ready to put a hundred percent into my work. That was the exact moment when they said, um, we're downsizing and we're going to let you go. So, uh, again, I wrote, 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 and I kept saying, I don't want to help people and give them, you know, talk to doctors about pills and protocols. I would rather meet people at the prevention side, at the wellness side, at the living life inspired side. And because I was writing, I was writing it all the time. I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to help people. I wanted to teach about prevention and because I was writing, I was able to open Natural Awakenings and see that this Long Island Territory was available. And that job of a publisher for Natural Awakenings was soon to be mine. And what it required was for me to write letters to a publisher. Uh, from I'm sorry, from a publisher. So I would write these letters. And the audience started, the readership started really connecting with these letters and actually asking, hey, can you put them in a book? Or I missed two months ago. Can you e- email me your letter? And that was really Why do you think they were able to connect with you in that way? I mean, a lot of people I, try to do this and it never really quite works out because they think they have a lot to say and they want to share their journey and think they can be helpful to people. Um, but it, it doesn't always pan out, but like yours did. I mean, what do you think that you have that connected that people were saying, hey, wait a minute, I want to hear what she has to say? Way honest. Like, I will tell you, you know, that I want Botox really bad, but I'm too chicken. You know, I'm just honest. I'm not trying to be a guru. I'm not trying to say you better breastfeed your kids until they're 17. Like, I don't have any, I don't have any, um, you know, you don't have an anybody agenda. else's game. Yeah, I don't. I don't have an agenda. I, I want to live healthy. You know, I'm here this morning. I'm trying to make my own fresh almond milk. If you saw my kitchen, it's filled with almond pulp. I'm about to go to the store and go buy the almond milk that I was trying to make. You know, I, I share those kind of flaws. And I, I think I'm just on the journey that most people are on, you know, especially people my age. So here I am. I'm 48 years old. Uh, my kids are teenagers. The career that I chose allowed me, with, with Natural Awakenings, allowed me to work predominantly from home so that I could be a bit available for them, you know, making healthy lunches. But all of a sudden, I find myself, you know, they don't need me as much, and I'm willing to share. You know, I share that. I share that, you know, my most recent letter to the publisher for my magazine talks about that somebody's breaking up with me. And you'll read it, but in the middle, it kind of says it's not my husband, it's my kids. They're breaking up with me. They don't need me as much anymore, you know. And so I, just, I think I just share that. And, again, I'm just really honest. And when I first got the magazine, um, part of the job requirement is that you do write a letter from, from the publisher. And it's usually very um, formatted. Like, in this issue, you will find fitness exercises, you know. So when I – Two days after I put my money into buying this territory, Hurricane Sandy came through and wiped out my office, a third of my home, and I still had to do the magazine because it was my only income. So I had no idea what a publisher letter was supposed to be. I had no idea. So I was like, all right, I'm just going to write from the heart. And So it was kind of a fluke because if I was trained on the right way to write a letter, it, it, this may have all never transpired. So it was sort of fate, destiny, um, 
I just wrote. I wrote about the the hurricane, the you know, the National Guard being in my te- in my in front of my home. You know, the the experience of watching a lot of people lose their houses, lose their businesses, and that was actually my second letter, and that really connected with people. And I thought, I'm not going to go back to the format. Like the readers like this. So, and yeah, then it's who you are, it's your, and you yeah. say, I mean like honesty and humor, but one of the things I always wondered about, and I know a lot of people when they're writing, not necessarily for a magazine, but they'll write, uh, won't write a memoir, but they'll write a novel, although it's sort of, you know, bridges, the, it's almost like a memoir because they don't want to talk, you know, they're not, they're concerned about what they're, people in their lives who they're talking about, how they will respond. I mean, do you have any of that? Because you're talking about being honest about your family and about, you know, very intimate personal things. How does, I'm curious, how does that work? Because, you know, you have a husband, now you have a 17-year-old son. um, So all of these people can be, or these, you know, family members can be very sensitive as to what you're writing. You know, that's really a great point. (laughs) They might be mad at me. I haven't thought of that. No. Um, You know, for the most part, it's always about anyone's effect on me. And and it's, again, a lot of it is just really, I'm trying to be less narcissistic and more kind. And that's what I talk about in the book, like blaming others less. So even if I give a story, let's say I I tell a story about, you know, uh, something between my husband and I, um, the article may be, or the chapter may be on blame. And really at the end of the chapter, I might have narked him out that I want to kill him, but at the end of the chapter, I say without me taking some blame, then I have no way to fix it. And I, and I believe that just as a whole with blame. If you start saying, oh, I couldn't get to work and it was all my daughter's fault and it was all, because she's always late, you know, that idea of putting blame on somebody else, it takes you off the hook from fixing the problem. So I try to do that a lot. I try to just discover flaws that I have that I would love to fix, whether it's kindness, forgiveness, being more forgiving, uh, reframing the way I, I see relationships and judgment and all these things that I want to change about myself. You know, when I share it, I think I'm still the butt of the joke or the butt of the problem. So I, I think that people in my family read it and probably to figure, oh, yeah, she's right, it is her fault. No. <laughs> yeah. so, I think I let my, my family and myself off the hook of an uncomfortable conversation because the book is designed to really self-discover. Uh, after each chapter, there's a page for the reader to write their own discovery, like, you know, forgiveness. I talk a lot about uh, forgiveness and letting go and Give us an example, because I think that is. Forgiveness and letting go, I think, is one of the things, as a social worker and as a uh, former therapist, it's like very difficult for people to do. Let go of that anger, letting go of whatever it is. Give us some examples of that, maybe of your own, you know, in your own life, and then, like, responses you've gotten from readers, because I think that's really helpful, and it gives, you know, it's an example of what you have in your your book. Yeah, sure. So, um, there's big things and little things for forgiveness, but, but all the, you know, anger and hate really, you know, it doesn't put somebody else on the hook. It, pu- it puts us on the hook, right? So, you know, one of the chapters, I just talk about a little incident. I'm a surfer and I went out in the ocean locally and I went out to, it was a little, little wave, maybe a foot max, maybe two. Uh, and I had taken my niece out for the day and it was an empty, you know, there's no lineup and this, older uh, chiropractor who I know, he didn't recognize me, 
sees us paddling out, and he starts yelling, why are you surfing here? You can't teach here. The, the entire ocean is empty. It's just me and him. And what I write about is, in the past, I have seen literally probably 40 guys surf that same break on a bigger wave, but yet now it's just him, and he wants it all to himself. So I was so mad that day. I, you know, I yelled at him. And I said, you don't own this ocean. Are you crazy? You know, the ocean gods, and I, I can't, I've never even been told not to surf in a location. You know, but I was so mad that for days I couldn't surf because he, I was expecting a certain day with my niece, and he he stumped it. You know, he, he ruined it for me. And I was so mad. It was a little thing, but I, I was so mad for, for days. Like the next day I'd go walk up to the boardwalk and go, oh, I don't want to surf. I see him out there. And, you know, I realized I was put myself in sort of a self-induced prison and I made him my warden. I gave him all this power. And I think we do that a lot, you know, with our children, when we argue with our teenage or adult children, with maybe their teachers, um, people at work where somebody will say something and it will sit with you all day and faster. Now they've moved on. They're surfing, they're working, but it's sitting with us and it's the littlest thing. So I talk about just having to consciously let it go. And again, we, by leaving the page on the back of that chapter, there's a page that says like, who do you need or what do you need? to have, what do you need to let people off the hook? Because you're really only letting you off the hook. And that's, you know, I guess forgiveness goes to bigger things. So that's an easy thing. I can let this guy, Leo, off the hook because I can just say, oh, you know, he's a, he's a snob or whatever, and I'm not going to let him own me. But there's bigger things. There's people that have yeah, us. Not only there are bigger things, but there's also sort of bigger people in your life. Okay, this yeah, guy, this was, happens, as you say, it happens a lot. But then you have the people who are very significant to you, let's say family, yeah, close sure. friends, or even colleagues at work. That gives it a slightly different twist, right? Sure, absolutely. And I'll give you even one better. So, yeah, you know, we have childhood traumas, and we have things that we have to... Um, and and I and maybe forgiveness isn't the word for that chapter. That's probably a, that's actually at the at the end. But another person that we have to forgive continually every day is ourselves. So I make mistakes every day. I make parenting mistakes. I make homeowner mistakes. I make work mistakes. And I think I put myself on a hook more than anybody else. Like we're we're quick we're quicker to forgive other people, but we really, at least self, I keep myself on a hook. If I make a mistake, it ruminates with me. I talk about, you know, in, at 12 years old, I wasn't nice to some girl. When I, it, I, I'm 48 years old. It still kills me when I think about, oh my gosh, I was mean to this poor girl when she was 12 and I was 12. Instead of saying, you know what, I was an idiot at 12 and I'm going to forgive myself because not forgiving myself is more than likely what's causing all my digestive issues. You know what I mean? Because it's all linked. You know? And I think there's an, and also, I think the 12-year-old is a good example because here you are ruminating, you're 48 about when you were 12 and what you did to this poor girl. It, it sort of, it, it's, there is a narcissistic quality to that, that you were so important to her. Do you know, like, who, sure. you know, maybe she walked away and after two weeks she didn't even care. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. So we, and we right. tend to do that. Absolutely. Oh, I did this to somebody. Yeah. I did that to somebody. They forgot about me. Uh, you know, I'm right. the only they, one who's thinking about me. Yeah. So there is yeah. that part That's of right. it too, right? Absolutely. And I talk about that too, like on, you know, because of social media, we think everything's about us. Like, if somebody puts up a photo, and, you know, I'm guilty of it. Again, I, 
I think that's what the book is. Like I talk about what I'm guilty of. And I imagine like the opening line is, you know, my book is to share with you my crazy. And the response that I'm getting from my readers is that y'all got some crazy too. (laughs) That's the whole point. But social media is really interesting because you see a picture, let's say um, a mom puts up a picture of five girls at a sleepover. And the first thought you have is, my kid wasn't invited to that. It, it immediately jumps back to you. Or you see a picture of somebody's selfie, you know, beautiful face at 48 years old, and you go, my face doesn't look like that. Does she get work? Should I get work? You know, everything you see on social media automatically reflects on yourself. It's very narcissistic, you know. So just being aware of that and realizing that probably that woman posting that picture of her sleepover had less than nothing to do with you. She was just trying to make herself feel good because for that particular day, maybe she wasn't, or she was, and she just wants to celebrate it. Well, you're looking so, at you a know, picture. It's just a snapshot. You're not looking at, first of all, you don't know the context in which she had the absolutely. sleepover. And you don't know the yeah. context for all of this stuff that you see on social media. And, you know, even if, you know, it's very hard to share anyway. So without context, what are you doing? You're just looking at a of picture, course. right? And, and of making all these yeah, assumptions. Yeah, of course. Absolutely, absolutely. But I think we all do. I think you know we're human, and we. (laughs) What? uh, Because I just want to get into the specifics of the of um, like what you when you're writing your pieces, like when you you know and 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 readers are responding. They have a chance. It's really interactive, isn't it? I mean, it is interactive. So how does that work? So the book is extremely interactive, and I built it that way because. When people were getting back to me saying, oh, you know, I read your letter in the magazine and you should write a book or this would be a great book, I actually compiled the book probably about two years ago and created it and I never sent it out because I kept reading it and going, like, it's too much Kelly, it's too much, it's not self-help, it's just me sharing my stories and my, you know, the conscious evolvement that I want to have and it wasn't until after each topic, I put a page, a reflection page for the reader. So like the first page, the first chapter might be that you pick it up because it can start anywhere. But if you pick it up in March, March talks about consciously eating, you know, not just, just eating for fuel, just being awake and not eating a whole bag of popcorn or, you know, just being conscious. And then there's a page. So I talk about my experience and, you know, I end end that little experience saying, and I'm going to get even better because right now I'm eating a king's cake from Louisiana that my friend just sent me. So, you know, I, I kind of share with it. It's, it's, it's a process and you can't be good all the time. But then I leave a page and it says, you know, what's conscious eating for you? What can you do to change your own relationship with food? And it, it's not everything. We're not looking for everything. But what? maybe you do an 80-20. 80% of the time I eat plant-based and 20, I can go crazy, or, you know, whatever it is for you. Some people may write, I want to do paleo diet, or I want to do a low-fat diet, or really my diabetes is something that I need to realize that when I eat sugar, I'm fueling. So that would be the page. Again, forgiveness, that chapter has a page. Like, who who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to let off the hook um, and walk away from? So there's pages after every topic, and and the topic is probably a page or two, so that you would do the journey a week at a time, you'd read one chapter, page or two, and then you'd journal. And, and the whole process wouldn't have to take more than about five or ten minutes a week. 
So that's kind of so. The, uh, sort of getting back to when I did the intro for you, uh, of, of intro about you. You're talking about so that gives <clears throat> readers that ability to get kind of a greater awareness. As, as I said, of their own personal yeah. relationships and their own journeys. It makes them stop yeah. and think about what they're doing. Yeah. How do you pick your topics? Is it just in what's happening in your own life or just you things know, that you see are trending or what? You know what? It's a lot. A lot of it's trending. I wrote, um, I wrote you know, unfortunate what's trending. There's been a lot of gun violence. I wrote an article uh, a letter probably right after Sandy Hook. So now what was that five years ago, six years ago? And then now we have this most recent high school in Florida. Uh, so, so there's different things that spark what I'm writing about, but they seem to come back to relevancy, you know, years later. So um, it depends. It's sometimes it's what's relevant now, what's going on now. Sometimes it's what's in my... The magazine itself is really um, a very health-focused magazine, body, mind, spirit. So a lot of times I'll get inspired by that. I'll also get inspired by um, just day-to-day. I wrote an article. I wrote a published a letter about dog poop and people not picking it up just because I went for a run and stepped right in it. So that's one. And that's just about, you know, sort of being apathetic and not, and, you know, that's just one example of what apathy can do because that dog poop runs into the ocean and then all of a sudden you're eating seafood with dog poop in it. You know what I mean? Like just how trickle down. I do know what you mean. And living in New York City, I would say that's one of my issues. It just amazes me that people would allow that to, or allow their dogs to, to, uh, or not clean up the mess. Um, yeah, it's yeah. Insane. I mean, yeah, it's insane, you know. And so, so those are the things that probably, you know, that's where I get different inspiration, you know. And and when I wrote about. Um, Sandy Hook, you know, there were so many, what made me write about it was there were so many people on Facebook again, because that's something I'm on, you know, the second Sandy Hook happened, I went to Facebook because you just want to be with somebody. That was one of the first times that sort of experience had been, it was right here in Connecticut. It was so close. And instead of sort of everybody putting out love and energy and it was just people fighting, guns kill people, people kill people. I mean, it was so... So really, my article was rather different. It was saying, you know, maybe we need to stop hijacking these tragedies for our own, you know, purpose and maybe just instead be more loving to one another. So if I hate Trump or if I like Trump, I still love you. You know what I mean? Like, just be a more loving nation. Maybe that's what these horrible, horrific events should be bringing out in us, not more division. Then they win. Then evil wins. So you know, like that was that article. Well, you know, it's interesting you should say that because, and I think this we've been talking about this as sort of a, a general topic about how these crises happen, like the the, the murders in in Florida. You're talking about Sandy Hook, all of this stuff. It happens, and then it, people, you know, they give their condolences, and people, I always say, weeping and wailing, and not that we shouldn't be, you know. Um, recognizing, you know, what happens, but then you have to continue with it, as you say. What kind of a relationship do we have with each other? I mean, it has to be ongoing, not just when there's a crisis, but a continual, like you say, loving one another, whatever your political views are. Um, So, and, And I guess people really, 
listen to you or, um, you know, when you reach out in that way, it sounds like it because you've got a lot of people who are paying attention to what you have to say. It's nice. It makes me feel good that people are, you know, responding and connecting. I just like that human connection. And um, even when I go on Amazon and I look at the reviews, they make me feel good because I, you know, my own, if I had a personal mission statement, especially after going through in my late 30s, all the things I went through, I just know that I'd, I'd love to think that I'm helping somebody with something. Because like, I think said, what, what people wanna... go through in their late 30s, is, you know, I mean, you went through some really big time uh, crises with your husband and your son and your job, everything actually. You covered the gamut almost of major <laughs> crises. Um, a lot of people just fall apart. Or they yeah. never really get it back together again. Or they keep on going, but not really in a productive, passionate way like you did. Um, what do you think that is in your background? We only have a few minutes left, so I just want to, um, about four minutes left, actually. So what, what do you think, like, in your upbringing that sort of gave you the strength to be able to recognize the kind of work you wanted to do and make these connections? Because there had to be something. There has to be something about yeah, you. Yeah, I think this is going to sound super cliche, but I think the truth is my parents, um, my, my parents, my sister was hit by a car when she was eight and she was killed. And, you know, watching my parents navigate this and stay together and still have date nights and still allow us freedom. Like she was hit by a car walking her bike across the street. I, even just living that history, I, I hate when my kids go on their bike. But yet, looking back in the 70s, my mom had no problem. Go ahead, get on your bike. You know, so just sort of, I, I do believe their example. And then the one or two things that I recognize that I don't, you know, that I would change about what they did. So I think, you know, I learned 100% from them, 90% based on what, how they managed through and then 10% what I might change in the way they managed through. So I guess the lesson to be learned here, two minutes left, uh, is, I mean, parenting is really important. And not only what you do as parents, but then as a child, how you incorporate that into your own, as an adult, your own behavior. I mean, it really is. I mean, that's, yeah. that's quite a tribute to your parents. Not to say, as you said, I mean, I'm hearing you say this, and they weren't perfect. They didn't do everything right. exactly right. But the overall way in which they were able to to really, I mean, respond to the most horrific thing that can happen to a parent um, really helped you in the long run. Um, okay, well, let's talk about specifically your um, the book, the website we can go to, or a website or more to read more, to learn more about you and also about the book so that we can... Uh, I want to mention the book again, obviously, A Year of Inspired Living, Essays and Exercises for Self-Reflection, and the author is Kelly McGrath-Martinson. Yeah, so the book is, um, the website's ayearofinspiredliving.com, and um, the Facebook is as well, and I would say you can connect with me there. Also, I would definitely recommend people go to Amazon, because I'm very excited about the reviews, and I get these emails all the time. There's maybe five or six reviews, and the funny thing I say is I only know one of those reviewers, which is, was a friend. It was very nice, but the others are strangers, and I, get, I do get emails that people are really, the, the book is resonating with them. When you open the first page, it's an introduction, 
but then, and then it starts in January, but that's not where you have to start. So if you got it tomorrow or if you got it in May, you'd read the intro and in May and go through that way. And some people are, a lot of people are telling me that they read through the entire book, which tells me they like it right away, and then they go back and then they do the weekly exercise. So um, the things I'm hearing are really making me happy. They really, the audience is connecting and enjoying it, and I like to feel that I put out a good product, so I'm excited about that. Very exciting work, and yes, and you can read it, which is an interesting way, which is good. You can make your own choices about how you want to read the book and how it connects to you. Great talking to you today. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been fun. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Maggie Hadley-West, activist and independent filmmaker. Uh After drinking radioactive iodine to kill her overactive thyroid, Guggenheim Award-winning filmmaker Maggie Hadley-West catapults her into illness, only to run smack into the medical corruption that is shredding the fabric of American life. Follow her as she brazenly uncovers the medical corruption and negligence that obscures medical practice, only to find yet another disturbing personal revelation. Uh, Maggie is featured on 2020, the Today Show, CBS, News, BBC, NPR, and and lots of other media. Uh, We're going to be talking about in Sick Sick to Death is the title of her film. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Maggie. Thank you so much, Catherine. Great to be here. 
All right. So we're going to start talking about the inspiration, obviously, for Sick to Death, uh, which comes from your own disturbing experience as being, I guess, misdiagnosed, mistreated, the whole kind of uh, medical system that uh, really didn't help you very much and, and caused you to become more sick rather than to, to be, become healthy. So let's start with that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Actually, I went 32 years being undiagnosed, and as a child, I had no idea that my experience was anything other than normal, but I was sick all the time when I was little, and then when I was about 20 or 21, I started to just feel you know, bad relentlessly, and I didn't know what was wrong with me. I was exhausted all the time. I my brain wasn't working properly, my body was cold, everything was off, and I, I thought I had chronic fatigue syndrome for almost 14 years. And it wasn't until my thyroid swung into hyperactivity that I was actually diagnosed with a thyroid problem, which I know now was going on my entire life. But when it became hyperactive, I went into what was um, what's called thyroid storm, where you can have a heart attack or a stroke and even die. And so I drank radioactive iodine and then killed my thyroid and then was prescribed levothyroxine drugs, which I took for 20 years, and those drugs then undertreated me. So let's go back because I'm curious. I myself have a thyroid problem and was diagnosed many, many years ago. So what year was that when that when you were starting not to feel well, but there was, you know, you were not diagnosed, let's say. What year are we talking about? It was 1980. It was 1980. I was living in a small town in Texas that had been built by Dow Chemical. I had had, you know, female problems for about a year, which was very typical of me that I, you know, something would go wrong and then I could never write it. And, um, and it was, I believe it was like a perfect storm, you know, of being, having a diminished immune system and being in a very toxic environment. And that made me much sicker and I catapulted into Hashimoto's. But nobody could diagnose it because the the typical test that's used, which is the TSH test, misses eighty five percent of people. So, do you think that was the result of also being in a small town, or the kind because we're talking about medical care, um, or did you were you able to go to any other medical centers for your diagnosis, or or how or what? No, I don't actually think it was a, a function of being in a small town because that's where it began, but I left that town pretty quickly because I realized how you know dangerous it was, actually, and I moved to New York City. And all of this story is also told in my film, Sick to Death. And um, when I moved to New York, where I thought all the best doctors in the world were, I went from doctor to doctor to doctor to doctor, and nobody could diagnose me. Nobody could you know, tell me what was actually wrong. And it wasn't till after, you know, I went into Graves' disease, which is the hyperactive autoimmune version of thyroid disease, and then started taking levothyroxine drugs when I became underactive, you know, and then moved back to Louisiana where I was, I was completely and utterly hopeless by the time I got back here, which is where my family's from. And on a fluke, I walked into a doctor's office, and he knew immediately that I had had thyroid disease my entire life. 
He recognized the physical signs. He recognized the symptoms. He actually listened to me. And there was not a single thing about my medical experience that wasn't anything other than classic. How do you think that, I mean, that, I guess that to me, I, I find that ama- I have amazing. I sort of had the opposite story of in college and a mother who, you know, had symptoms that you're describing, took me to an old physician in Boston, and he looked at me, he immediately diagnosed me, gave me the medication, and two weeks later I felt as if I had been reborn. <laughs> and, yeah, you know, con- yeah, and continue, because you do, you just, it's, it's just a horrible, it's hard to diagnose in the sense, particularly as teenagers, I think, or um, or in college, because some of the symptoms are related to the stuff that happens to you when you're young. You know, you sleep long hours and you do things to your body that aren't necessarily good for you. And um, so, but th- I mean, that's there's no excuse. So, what's the lesson that we learned from this? Because you went 32 years uh, and still were successful and able to do. I, it amazes me that you were able to do what you've done in the context of that. You know, that's funny you say that, Catherine, because it amazes me as well. But I also know that I have really lived below my potential because I'm constantly battling my energy levels and my um, my capacity to stay well for any given time. But to go back to what you said about you're going to an old school doctor, that is the trick. Because the doctor that I ended up walking into his office, his name is Dr. Chuck, and he figures very large and sick to death, um, which is actually linkable on my website, sickthenumber2death.com. He was trained by his father, who was an old school doctor. And his father was mentored by a doctor by the name of Broda Barnes, who was a very well-known thyroid doctor in the 60s, 70s, and then he um, died in the 80s. And he was always talking about thyroid disease already being at epidemic proportions. And so to go back to the TSH test, the test that misses the vast majority of people, it's prior to that test, which I believe they started using in the 60s, doctors used to know the signs and the symptoms. But once this, once this um, test was developed, they no longer, doctors no longer had to learn anything. They no longer had to recognize the signs and the symptoms. And because it's so often women, it was very easy to disregard women. But it's actually super easy to diagnose, even in babies, in young children, in adolescents, and in college students, because... You know, the symptoms are obvious. For instance, my hair is really thin. I'm only five foot three. I have a tendency to gain weight. All you have to do is look at me, and I don't eat that much. My hands are constantly cold. My feet are cold. I'm prone to upper respiratory infections. I have a wacky immune system. My muscles are cold, so I have bursitis, um, carpal tunnel, sciatica, all kinds of things go wrong in my little body because of the heart palpitations because my thyroid either wasn't working properly, was underactive, or then was on a medication that undertreated it, so I continued to be symptomatic. But I diagnose people all day long, and I don't have a medical degree. Do you sit in the subway and look at people? I do. And, uh, I do. And I will actually, just yesterday, I was talking to a woman, a barista, 
And I said, you know you have a thyroid problem. And she said, no, I don't know. I was just tested and I'm fine. She said, but I've thought for a very long time that something was wrong with my thyroid. But she has these horizontal lines, these two horizontal lines on her neck. And almost every single person in my film, in Sick to Death, has these horizontal lines as well, which are a physical symptom of thyroid disease. And then there's, you know, yellowish skin, or the palms of my hand are very, very yellow, and the rest of my skin is yellow too, which has to do with the production, I believe, of vitamin A. And and then there's, you know, this most obvious thing that you're exhausted and your brain doesn't work, and my brain is lame. I think that's a good example. I was in, uh, at the time, in my own experience, uh, in uh, boarding school and captain of the debating team and was always really good at it. And then as my thyroid disease was progressing, I couldn't, I became, I just couldn't, uh, you know, on, when I was on having in the middle of the debate, I couldn't remember things. I mean, it does. It affects your brain, sleep, you know, all of the symptoms that you're describing were there. Right. But And do you I have Hashimoto's, you know, Catherine, or do you, are you just hypothyroid? I I'm hypothyroid, so I just take Synthroid, which I've been taking most of my life. Well, you're very lucky then because there's only 10% of people that are only hypothyroid. The rest of the people that have thyroid problems have the autoimmune version. And Synthroid, which is a levothyroxine drug, as you know, is made of T4. But in a healthy body, T4 converts to T3, which is the active hormone that everybody needs in their every cell and every muscle, every organ and every bone in their body. And if you have the autoimmune version of thyroid disease, you can't convert that T4 to T3, and so, and which is exactly what happened to me. I was given levothyroxine drugs, and I just got sicker and sicker and sicker because my body couldn't convert it. What about the fact that, you know, and I've heard this today as well, the opposite is true. You know, doctors will just prescribe, well, you have a thyroid condition when you don't necessarily have one and, you know, prescribe low doses of, say, thyroid medication. I, I see that also as kind of a trend in, in, in medical practice. That's interesting because that's something I almost never hear. I rarely hear it. And, and the reason I don't is because I don't think doctors are paying enough attention. You know, I, I, I just don't think they are, unless, of course, they're um, an integrative medicine doctor that is sort of specializing in thyroid disease. Because, I mean, one of the reasons that I made the movie Sick to Death was because you literally cannot swing a cat without hitting somebody that has thyroid disease, either diagnosed or undiagnosed or undertreated. So why do you think that is? I mean, is this just becoming more and more prevalent? I think you say that uh, we have 750 million people sick and suffering from thyroid disease worldwide. What's happening? Why do you, is it, you know, what's your well, take I think on there's that? Well, I think there are a lot of things that are going on. For instance, there are the things that I mentioned previously. The TSH test doesn't work, so people aren't being caught early so that they can live healthier lives. There is the undertreating of thyroid disease, but there are also all of these environmental um, deficiencies and or things that interact with our systems that are making people hypothyroid, like 
um, medications. There's a lot of medications that can, can trigger hypothyroidism. There's, um, you know, those really squishy water bottles that came out about, I don't know, six years ago now. Those are really, really squishy because they're made of synthetic estrogen. So we have all these false estrogens in the environment that are messing up our endocrine systems or they're, you know, in the 50s and the 60s, bread used to have iodine in it and iodine is very nourishing to the thyroid, but there's no longer iodine in bread. In fact, it's, there's bromine in bread and bromine actually stops the thyroid function. And then there's all, you know, a lot of the vegetables that, um, that people eat, particularly if they're not aware that they actually have thyroid disease, they can be eating vegetables that are called goitrogens that actually inflame the thyroid, like um, cauliflower or bok choy or broccoli or kale, you know, which are particularly bad for you, spinach, if, um, if you're eating them raw, juicing them. So it's a pretty so it's a complicated a environment like that we're, yeah, we're environmental living factors, in. environmental toxins. I'm calling them. So, yeah. um, what what do how do we attack the problem? Well, how do consumers attack the problem? Let's say. Well, that's we actually have... the reason I made sick to death. And before I yeah. made the movie, I actually created a website because I wanted I I wanted to help people that were like me that were like completely and utterly frantically, desperately trying to find information. So um, listeners can go to my website, which is sick2death.com. There is an enormous amount of um, information there, including how to test yourself without going to a doctor. And there's something called the basal body temperature test, where you just put a thermometer by your bedside and you pick up that thermometer every morning and you put it under your tongue for five, six, seven, eight mornings and you see what your body temperature is. And I mean, that was one of the things that I was always telling people, my body temperature is really low. My body temperature fluctuates all the time. Well, your thyroid is your body's thermostat. So if somebody's body temperature is running low, they have a problem with their thyroid. If it's running high, you have a problem with your thyroid. And and then there's also a way to actually order blood tests so you don't have to ask the doctor to do it. You can bring the blood tests in and you can actually um, tell the doctor what blood tests you want because typically they will only do the TSH test and that will miss almost everybody. So the first thing is to be able to figure out if your thyroid's not working properly. There's also an enormous list of symptoms, and there's an amazing medical book on the website, which is also in the movie Sick to Death, and that is the reason, that was actually the catapulting moment that I decided I had to make a movie because I was so angry, because when I looked at this medical book, which went out of print in 1995, I could not believe what it said. It was very simple and it's the tables and it's the systems of your body like your cardiovascular system, your nervous system, your um, muscles and your bones and, you know, on and on. And um, underneath it are all of the symptoms of thyroid disease. And it was literally like check, check, check. Things that you would never think were associated with thyroid disease like ADD or a lack of resistance to upper respiratory infections or, um, 
even um, bipolar behavior can be related to thyroid disease or dyslexia or heart palpitations. And so that, when I realized that all of the medical information actually preexisted and that there was a medication that worked for better for a lot of people, which is what I'm on now, which is called natural desiccated thyroid. I was like, I got to make a movie. But before I did that, I put everything on the website so people could help themselves, recognize themselves, and figure out what the next move should be. Now, would you you recommend that, let's say, for children as well? You kind of you do your own sort of self monitoring for absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And I'll, then one of the you, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say one of the amazing things that happened in the process of making the movie was that my first producer immediately recognized that her mother-in-law, who she thought was a hypochondriac for 20 years, by the way, she realized that she actually had thyroid disease, and she was mortified that she had been so dismissive of her. And then two years later, she was able to recognize those symptoms in her seven-year-old daughter. So the next step, okay, you take a seven-year-old daughter, then you go to the pediatrician. Are we going to the pediatrician, endocrinologist, primary care physician? I say avoid endocrinologists like the plague. They don't really (laughs) understand thyroid disease, and they think they do. No, my suggestion is that people find a doctor, possibly a family doctor. That would be, be my preference. I'm in the process of trying to do that for my sister and my niece right now, my sister-in-law and my niece, um, but find a doctor that really understands thyroid disease because it's almost impossible for your body to make it if it's not there. But if you don't have it, all kinds of things are going to be off. So it's good to start natural desiccated thyroid hormone when somebody is young. For instance, last weekend I was with my one-year-old niece and her hands are ice cold. And her body weight's a little bit high. And so that indicated to me that she's hypothyroid. And so I talked to my sister-in-law and my brother about it. They are both hypothyroid because there is also the genetic component. Yeah, that and was my next question, the genetic component. How, how prevalent is that or do we know? I mean, statistically, if your very, parents, I one don't or two know parents statistically have... what it is, but I know that in my own family, my mother was diagnosed and very proudly never did anything about it, but her spine fused together. She lost all her hair. She was in incredible pain. She was um, diagnosed with fibromyalgia, and then she ended up with endocrine cancer. And, you know, if, you're, if you do not optimize your body to the best possible health you can, then we all become susceptible to other illnesses. Yeah, I think the other thing, it's so, it's so easy if you don't have, like, the information you're talking about or seeing your film, Sick, Sick to Death, or the website. It's really easy. Somehow with thyroid disease, you can attribute all your symptoms to something else, um, which is not necessarily true of other diseases because you're not necessarily in acute pain, for instance. So it, it's a little bit more, I don't know if the word is amorphous, so you really can just, it's easy for um individuals to just kind of let it go and, as I say, attribute your symptoms to other things. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's just like I, I, I don't lose weight or I've been exercising like crazy, but I'm not, I'm not losing weight. Well, you know, exercise, 
when you're hypothyroid actually makes your thyroid slow down. So it works, you know, particularly really strenuous exercise. It works against you. And you're totally correct. It's really easy to miss it. Or, you know, as a child, I thought that I wasn't smart because I had such a terrible time memorizing things. But in the medical book, when I saw um, memory issues were a part of low thyroid function, I was like, oh, my God, that was incredible. I couldn't memorize anything when I was a kid. Thyroid disease is insidious. The word keeps coming up in my mind, but um, just having had my own experience with it. We only have a couple minutes left, so let's give out you know, some of the information you gave me at the beginning of the interview, but also anything more, any website that we should go to for more information about you, about the film, uh, or any other websites that you think would be helpful for us in terms of information about thyroid disease. Sure. So the website for the movie and for all kinds of information is sick, the number two, death.com. And on the website, I am, because of the movie, I am affiliated with a lot of the people in the country that are doing the most progressive work. And so there are links to people like Mary Showman, who's authored 13 books on thyroid disease, to Hypothyroid Mom, who talks about um, infertility and thyroid disease, which is very common. There is um, Thyroid Change, which is a great advocacy organization and has the absolute best doctor finder in the country, and that link is on the website. So there's an enormous amount of of information there, and then the movie is sick uh, Sick to Death, and the link to the movie is on two places, on the home page of the website, and I hope people will watch it because it'll help them recognize their own symptoms and sort of it sort of shows you through the example of me and other experts in the film as well as lots of patients how how people can advocate for themselves yeah very important advocating for yourself very important film sick to death and uh, I've been talking to Maggie Hadley West. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Lots Thank of good you, Catherine. I yeah. so appreciate you. Yeah, stay healthy. <laughs> Thank you. You as well. I will. Uh, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.